Let's begin with prayer, and then we'll jump into our lesson. Lord, help us today as we look into your word. Father, we pray that your word will change us, that it'll inspire us, that it'll convict us, that it'll motivate us, that it'll help us to see you. And today we pray as we begin this series about identity that we will understand who we are in Christ. Through him we pray. Amen. I want you to imagine for a moment you walk into a room and you don't know a lot of people. It could be a a work event, it could be a school event, um, uh, maybe a party. And you notice as you go in, first you don't know a lot of the people, and then you notice there's a little table there, and there are name tags that you're supposed to fill out. But as you grab a name tag and a marker and you're about to write your name, you're instructed not to put your name, but instead to put something else to identify you. Kind of playing a game, helping to get people to know each other better. What would you put? If you can't put your name on your tag... What would you put there? Well, a lot of people, the first thing that comes to mind is their occupation, their career. You know, I'm a teacher. I'm an engineer. I might put, I'm a minister. And so that's kind of our default way of thinking. Sometimes we do things by what we're trying to accomplish or maybe a relational role. Say, I'm a mom or I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm a wife. I've met a lot of people over the years that when you get to know them and they start telling you about themselves, explaining, they will share an experience that they are going through or have overcome because that in some ways identifies them. They may say something like, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict, I'm bipolar, I'm a cancer survivor, I'm divorced, I'm bankrupt, I'm jobless. So in some ways, they're seeing their identity through their struggle or maybe through their suffering, something they're dealing with. Whether we know it or not, sometimes we identify ourselves by what other people say about us. We're going to talk about that one in particular in the coming weeks. Sometimes in our upbringing, things that are said about us, it sticks and that becomes a part of our identity. We might also tell people, what we're passionate about. So on that little sticker, instead of saying my name, I might say, I'm a runner, or I'm a woodworker, or I'm a vegan, or I'm a photographer, or I'm an American, or I'm a Republican, or I'm a Democrat, or I'm, I'm an independent. All these things that identify us. We have all kinds of ways that we do this. And what we're going to talk about in this series are why our identity matters. How you see yourself, because everything flows from that. Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And that's really the core of what we're talking about here. I put on your outline, it's on the screen as well. Understand this, identity determines behavior. Identity determines behavior. You ever wonder why you do what you do? Why do you respond in the way you respond? When you're patient, why are you patient? When you're impatient, why are you impatient? It becomes from, it comes from who we are down deep. But we don't talk much about this. Because our default mindset is we tend to focus on the behavior. Behavior modification. Not our identity. 
But if we miss our identity, if we forget who we are, then it's hard for us to follow through with the right behavior, with the right choices. Parents get this. Early on, you tell your kids when they're young, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this. But when they get to the age, especially when they're a teenager and they're going off without you, parents, what do we say to our children? Remember who you are. Why do we say that? Because we're not going to be there with them. And we may not have told them about every scenario. And so how do you guide? How do you make the decisions? Remember who you are. Identity determines behavior. And the Bible gives a great deal of attention to who we are in Christ. Because when we understand our true identity as Christians, that's what helps us then to navigate life and to know what to do. But even as mature Christians, we can miss this. That's why I'm calling the series Mistaken Identity. And each week, we're going to look at different ways that we mistake our identity because we give a lot of attention, a lot of hours, a lot of ourselves to so many things, and it's easy for that to become our main identity. But it's not really who we are. So we're going to look at some of these mistaken identities. And what we're going to do is look at the book of Ephesians. So go, go ahead and open your Bible or your Bible app to the book of Ephesians. I'm going to have some verses on the screen, but some I'm not. Because I want you to kind of see an overview there. The book of Ephesians, written in the early 60s by the Apostle Paul. This is seven, maybe ten years after he spent two years with them. So some time had passed, but it's still a, a young church, if you will. And obviously, as you read the letter, you get the idea that it didn't take long for these Christians to forget. So he writes this letter to remind them. Evidently, their identity as a Christian was really conflicting with something. Maybe their identity as being Ephesian because it's so hard, it would have been so hard for them to live out a Christian life in a city like Ephesus. Ephesus was a hard place. Spiritual amnesia is what we're talking about. I put this on the screen. It's kind of who we forget who we are in Christ. And I think that's still a challenge today. They had it then. I think we can suffer with it now. Think about this. You've been in church for years. Maybe you've been a Bible student for years. And you forget what you've studied. You ever had that happen? Maybe you've read the book before, and then you're reading it again. You don't remember it being in there. We forget that, that common struggle of spiritual amnesia. We forget who we are in Jesus. So Paul is reminding us in this letter, here's who you are in Christ. Now, the book of Ephesians is easy to outline. Chapters 1 through 3 really is who you are in Christ. And then chapters 4 through 6 is, here's how you behave. Here's what you're supposed to do. So the book is basically divided in half. So the last half, chapters 4 through 6, is full of some great truths to know. Some great ways that we need to be obedient. Very practical about husbands and wives, about parents, about children, about the workplace. That last half of the book is very practical about how to live it out. But if we forget... Who you are in Christ, the application falls short. I think what we see in this book, as you read through it, it would have been easy for the Ephesians to fall into that category. Or maybe they had fallen into that category. They forgot their identity in Christ. 
And I want to give you a little bit of background to maybe understand why that could have happened to them. Ephesus was an impressive city. You might even say a very impressive city. There's an artist rendering in the bottom right of your screen there. You can see what is supposed that it looked like. So when you think of an old city, don't just think of, uh, of stone buildings. There are one-room homes, and it was kind of primitive. I'm sure every town has always had those. But Ephesus had become enormously wealthy because of her location as a major port city in Asia Minor. This is a major metropolitan city, major buildings, huge gymnasiums. I was reading about this, hot baths, cold baths, massage rooms, swimming pools, massive amphitheater that would hold 25,000 people. Think about that. When you think about a city to go to where things to do, this was Ephesus, huge amphitheater, huge shopping complex. It was the size of two football fields. Yeah. Way back then, this is what was going on. This is the home of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Diana. Ephesus would have been an impressive place to live. Everybody wanted to live there. Everybody wanted to be from there. It would also be a challenge to be a Christian living there. So think of this impressive city. A lot of pride. It's like being from Los Angeles or being from New York City. You just say the word... And people know about you because they know where you're from. And there'd be some automatic pride with that. Ephesus was no exception. I was thinking about that. And I thought about the names of towns. You know, living in Tennessee, we've got some peculiar named towns. Now, every state's got some, right? But can you imagine if you were introducing yourself, you might say, well, I'm Randy Owens, and I'm from East Tennessee. Now, why would you say you're from East Tennessee? Well, you might say you're from East Tennessee if you're actually from dismal Tennessee. How would you like to be known for, hey, I'm Randy, I'm from dismal Tennessee? Well, it's a little bit better than bitter end Tennessee. Yo, I'm not making this up. According to onlyinyourstate.com, when it comes to towns with crazy names, Tennessee takes the cake. Now, Every state's got them. We know that, but y'all, we're up there, okay? Let me share a few that they listed. Stinking Creek. How would you like to introduce yourself? I'm from Stinking Creek. Evidently, the name comes from freezing winter of 1779 when the cold left animals dead and rotting throughout the countryside. Thus the name. What about Sweet Lips? Can you imagine if you're a woman in sales or trying to get a job? Hi, I'm from Sweet Lips. You know, what exactly, we understand that. Again, that was named from a small creek, and the Civil War soldiers claimed to be the sweetest they'd ever tasted. Well, that sounds better, doesn't it? What about the, all the animal-related names, like Goat City, Duck Town, Turtle Town, Buck Snort, Bug Scuffle, Bug Tussle? Bug Tussle was so popular, Kentucky wanted one, too. Finger, Tennessee, guys, not to leave the women out, there's Love Lady, Tennessee. That's sweet. I'm from Love Lady, Tennessee. Edith, that's sweet. I mentioned Dismal, Bitter End. There's Difficult. Hi, I'm from Difficult. Does that say anything about you or those people? How did they get that name? I looked it up. So when the original residents applied for a town name, it was rejected because the name chosen was too difficult. 
So they complied. Here's one I looked up. Defeated. I'm from defeated Tennessee. Y'all, that's a town. I looked it up. Here's worse. There is a defeated elementary school. No, they didn't. Sure, they could have named it after somebody. I'm from defeated. Now, some of you Vandy fans are thinking defeated must be some part of Knoxville, right? That's where you're going with your brain. You could be from smart Tennessee. You've heard of that one? It's got two T's. But not so much if you're from Nankapoo. I'm from Nankapoo. Our city mascot's a teddy bear. Or maybe a unicorn. Y'all, if you're from one of those towns and you're introducing yourself, can you imagine just saying, I'm from Middle Tennessee, or I'm from West Tennessee, or I'm from East Tennessee, and you really might not say the exact name. Not so much because you're embarrassed. You may love your town, but you wouldn't want people that don't know you well to think that is your identity, that that is who you are. Ephesus was a place where people had a lot of pride, and you can understand why. It was considered a good thing. So in this letter, Paul reminds them again and again that their primary allegiance is to Jesus. Not from being from Ephesus, but being in Christ. And we can learn from this because we need the same reminder. This may step on our toes a little bit. Our identity as citizens in the United States is not our primary identity. More important than being in the U.S. is being in Christ Jesus. It's not that our primary identity is to be an American. It's to be a Christian. And we may need to be reminded of that and even make sure that our lingo, the way we talk, references that. That's why I've called this message Government ID because I think it's helpful for us to think about this. We understand the idea of a government idea. Have you been watching the news about the state of Tennessee has this new law where everybody has to have a, a new identification? It's called REAL, R-E-A-L, ID. According to the news site, by October 1, 2020, all persons must have a REAL ID. It's got a star. A regular driver's license has a star in the corner. For accessing certain federal buildings, nuclear facilities, and boarding commercial flights within the U.S. Well, we get that, don't we? Government driver's license. You take it with you everywhere without even thinking. Some people even attach it to their phone so that it's always with them. So we understand government ID, part of our everyday life. But just like the Ephesians, we can put too much into that, into our identity, our, our nationality, our government, or our political way of thinking. Now, I want to say this. There's absolutely nothing wrong with celebrating our country and being proud to be an American. As Americans, we should be thankful for our freedoms and honor those who died for those freedoms and continue to serve to keep those freedoms. Last summer, C and I walked all over the Arlington National Cemetery. If you've been there, you know how impressive that place is, how huge that place is. And you can't spend time among all those markers, all those graves, with an overwhelming sense of gratitude for those people who paid the ultimate price in serving our country. Proud to be an American. 
I've got an American flag hanging on my front porch. So I want you to know that. But my allegiance to the flag is but a faint whisper to my allegiance to Jesus Christ. He is my primary source of identity. That's what the Bible is teaching us. And when we get these confused, the order of our country coming before our relationship with the Lord, all kinds of problems can happen. And people mistakenly look at their faith through the lens of their country, of their government, of their political persuasion. It happens all the times, and sometimes we may fall guilty to that, to see the Christian faith as an American thing, to see their main core identity as being an American. Paul reminds us that our core identity is in Christ, that when we look at that first, that everything else is seen through that lens. Our core identity is what determines how we think how we respond, how we behave. Notice how Paul opens the letter. If your Bible is open, Ephesians 1.1, he says this, to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, if you like to mark in your Bibles, you should underline in Christ, because those two words are key. There's a theme going on here. Those two words change everything. Those two words are the most common descriptor of New Testament Christians. In Christ, more than 140 times in the New Testament, you find that phrase, in Christ or in him. And 35 of those are directly related to our identity. This is who you are in Christ. Now, look at the rest of chapter 1 in your Bibles. I want you to notice the first section down through verse 14. I put it on the screen not to read it, but I went ahead and underlined, circled, every time that phrase appears. 11 times in the first 14 verses, in Christ, in him, some form of that, you think Paul's got something on his mind. He's just getting started here, writing this letter to the Ephesians. Why is he talking about being in Christ so much? Unless those in Ephesus had got that mixed up. Maybe they'd mistaken their identity. Have you ever noticed how your brain, kind of a side note here, can not see or, or see something? Like, like you ever been car shopping and it's time to upgrade maybe, and you think, I'm going to get a, a different car. And you think, uh, what about a, a Nissan Rogue, maybe a silver one? And so then you start looking as you're going, then you see Nissan Rogues everywhere. You ever had that happen? Even silver ones. Now, they were on the road the day before, but you weren't thinking about that, so you don't see it. Our brain does the same thing when we study the Bible. And sometimes we read the Bible and we just kind of read right over things. But when you start looking, what does the Bible say about our identity? Then you see little Nissan rogues everywhere as you're reading through Scripture. Think about what you know. In Christ, we are chosen. We are adopted. We're redeemed, we're marked, we are purchased, we are saved, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, we are holy, we are not condemned. This is who we are. This is what we should put on our name tag. What else identifies you? If not your name, what? 
These should be the things. This is what God thinks of when he looks at you, when he thinks of you. When you come to him in prayer, we are his child. We are his Think about that. I'm adopted by God. I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit. I'm purchased by the blood of his son. This is our identity. This is who we are. And each of these, think about it, call us out of an old identity into a new identity, a new self. Paul challenged the Ephesians to know, to remember that their primary identity comes from being in Christ. So read into chapter 1 as we get into the study. Now, quickly flip to chapter 2. This is on the screen, but you might want to read out of your own Bible. Again, writing to saints. He's writing to Christians here. But notice, beginning of verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, And strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down his flesh, the the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, thereby killing hosti- the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Do you see what he's saying? Do you hear the message No matter your history, no matter your nationality, no matter your religious background, it doesn't matter. In Christ Jesus, even if you were far off, now you're one. Now you're together. And that identity changes everything. The Christians in Ephesus needed this reminder. I think we need this reminder too. So let me share two concepts I think help us to understand and maybe remember, identify, clarify our identity a bit. Paul refers to us as citizens of heaven. He mentions this on down to verse 19 in Philippians 3.20. Peter calls us in 1 Peter 2.11, foreigners and exiles. Think about that. Citizens of heaven, foreigners and exiles. We've just been studying some in the book of Nehemiah. Remember in Nehemiah's day, those Jews weren't born in their home country, didn't grow up in their home country, were doing well in a foreign country, but they weren't home. That wasn't their homeland. And they wanted to go back. As great as this country is, this is not our native land, if you will. Even though we're born here, even though we're doing well here, Even though we're happy, pleased to be an American, this is not our home. And we can see ourselves that way. Again, identity determines behavior. So how does that shape us? Three things, you're filling the blanks. The first one is this. As citizens of heaven, we live differently. As citizens of heaven, we live differently than citizens of earth. 
If you've ever traveled to a foreign country, whether it's military or, or missions or, or, or just for fun, you know it doesn't take long for you to realize how different you are. You look different, you, you think different, you, you speak different, you eat different. I mean, everything is different. As citizens of heaven, we're going to live differently in this world. Because the kingdom of heaven is in direct contrast to the kingdoms of this world. Think about it. The citizens of the world, it's all about power. It's all about accomplishments. It's all about accumulations. It's all about comfort. But when you're in Christ, you think differently. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. In the garden, he prayed for his followers that we'd be in the world but not of the world. And when we see ourselves, as Peter said, foreigners, that's our identity, then we live differently. Nicholas Kristof wrote a column for the New York Times. He's not a Christian, but he praises the work of many Christians. Let me just share a bit of the article. Evangelicals are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their income to charities, mostly church-related. More important, they are disproportionately likely to go to the front lines at home or abroad in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, human trafficking, or genocide. And some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians who truly live their faith. And then he goes on to say, I'm not particularly religious myself, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives this way. And it sickens me to see that faith mocked at New York City cocktail parties. Do you hear what he's saying? I'm not particularly religious. But those folks are different. They give of what they've got to what they believe in. They're championing for those who don't have a voice. Helping those who are hungry. Helping those who are needy. Helping those who are desperate. Amazing bravery. Well, number two, as citizens of heaven, we recognize heaven's ultimate jurisdiction. That's to say the Bible has ultimate authority. So when the court says something or uh, the latest poll says something or a law says something, we're aware. We're very much aware. But to us, because we're citizens of heaven, we live by different authority. We follow God's word as the ultimate authority. Peter tells us that we're foreigners. Peter also tells us to submit to governing authorities. And think about it. Peter would be writing that in the days of Nero. It would even be harder to follow that command. But this is the same guy, remember, in Acts chapter 4, that was locked up for preaching about Jesus and told never to speak again in the name of Jesus. And chapter 5 says we must obey God rather than man. Heaven has ultimate jurisdiction, and we understand that. We get that. It's who we are. And then number three, we put our hope in heaven, not in Washington, D.C. We put our hope in heaven, not in Washington, D.C. If we're citizens of heaven, that's where our hope lies. If you want to think about that this week, I want to challenge you. Spend some time thinking, where's your hope? Because wherever your hope is, that's your identity. 
may take some time to think about that because that ultimately defines who you are. You put your hope in your work or your success or your family or your finances or your politics. That's what defines who you are. If you think the current president is the best thing that ever happened or the worst thing that's ever happened, ultimately, as a citizen of heaven, it doesn't matter who's in the White House. Because our citizenship is in heaven. And we know the kingdom of heaven is what's going to change the world. Not one person or one party. Because here's something we don't think about very much. Every nation is temporary. We cannot imagine a world without the U.S. But go back and look for the city of Ephesus, and you won't find it. It's not there, it's just ruins. This once major metropolitan port city with all kinds of people who were prospering and so glad to be there, there is no more. Our hope is not in America. Paul says, you're citizens of heaven. Peter says, you're foreigners, you're exiles. Instead, over and over again, the phrase we read in scriptures, you are in Christ. Let me close with how Paul expressed this, Galatians 3, 26 and following. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You hear just label after label after label. He's saying that these labels are just that. They're just labels. They don't define you. They're not your identity. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Don't let all these other things be your identity. It's not the core of who you are. The core of who you are as a child of God is that you are a child of God. That you are in Christ So maybe let me put this in language that we may need to hear. In Christ, there is no American or Mexican. In Christ, there's no Democrat or Republican. In Christ, there is no citizen or immigrant. In Christ, there is no black or white, no rich or poor, no blue-collar, no white-collar. In Christ, there's no young or old, no single or, or married In Christ, there's no doctorate or dropout. Now, this may be hard for some, but in Christ, there's no Tennessee Vol or that state, that that city, that university down there in Tuscaloosa. Who are those people? It's hard for us, isn't it? We wear the colors. We take pride We give all of our time, so much of our money to all these things, but that's really not who we are. In Christ, there's no insider or outsider. There's not really a newcomer or old-timer. 
You're in. We're one man. That's how he describes it. You know, foreigner, the word Peter calls us foreigner, really what that means is I'm on my way to. I'm on my way to. I'm just passing through. And that's really who we are. We're foreigners. And Paul said it in this verse. Well, how do you get in Christ? You're baptized. That's why every Sunday we give an invitation for anybody who is ready to be in Christ. You know, sometimes I'll say the water is ready. You may not know this. We got a brand new baptistry. Clean water. It's ready. It's always ready. Today, if you want to be in Christ, it's invitations for you. Or maybe for you, the challenge, the invitation is to think. Maybe be a part of a, a study tonight, a small group. And if you're not, just go through it yourself. Look through there and be challenged. What, what is the Bible teaching you about your identity? And then how much of your behavior flows from that? If you need to respond, why don't you come as we stand?